going to be here. Um, for those of you who don't know me, um, I know most of you, but my name is Ben Robertson, and I'm the um, campus minister for Reform University Fellowship over at William & Mary. And uh, though we have recently acquired uh, a second pastor, somehow our two pastors managed to have vacation on the same Sunday. So they get to call me in uh, to pinch hit, and uh, it's just a real privilege for me. Uh, we've been here about two years now, and you ha- you've become our church family, and it's always just a, an honor and a privilege uh, to preach here to family. So thanks for letting me uh, fill in. Uh, most of you know, uh, if you've been going to this church over the last six months or so, that we just finished a series on the book of Acts. In today's sermon, we're going to be looking back. The title of the sermon is The Prequel to Acts. We're going to look at a prayer that Jesus prayed on the night when he was betrayed for his church. And there's a sense in which I think you'll see that the whole book of Acts, in many ways, was an answer to that prayer. And so hopefully this will be a nice way to to wrap things up. We're going to be looking at John chapter 17, starting at verse 14 and reading to the end of the chapter. And then we're going to skip over to Acts chapter 2. We're going to look at a a typical passage, one of the the passages that sort of sums up so much of what's happening throughout the book of Acts as the early church preaches the gospel and expands and grows in the way that we've seen over the last several months. So first... John chapter 17, starting at verse 14, Jesus is praying. He's been praying for the apostles. He's talked about how he's entrusted them with the words that the Lord has given, the Father has given to him. And here the Son continues to pray to the Father. Verse 14, I have given them, that is the apostles, your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And you sent, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, so that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the whole world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Now quickly flip over to Acts chapter 2, just a few pages over. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to the end of the chapter. Describing the early church. 
they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were gathered together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you that you've given us your word. Lord Jesus, all of those years ago, you prayed, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Would you continue to answer that prayer this morning? Sanctify us by the truth of your word. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. In 1986, there was a boost in Navy recruitment. Lots of young men around the ages of 18, 19, 20 were signing up to join the Navy at unprecedented numbers. It is not a coincidence that 1986 was also the year that the movie Top Gun came out. In fact, it is so much not a coincidence that the the U.S. Navy, seeing the popularity of the film and the potential, actually set up recruitment booths at movie theaters so that young men, after leaving from Top Gun, would then go and sign up. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment, and perhaps there's several of you who have been in the Navy, maybe you were one of the Top Gun recruits, but I want you to imagine an 18-year-old young man watching the movie Top Gun. And what does he see? Fighter planes doing flybys, showing off for the girls and for superior officers, breaking the rules, flying inverted, having cool nicknames like Maverick and Iceman and Goose. I guess Goose isn't a very cool nickname. But the character Goose was married to Meg Ryan. So he's thinking, even if I'm Goose, maybe things aren't so bad. (laughs) Fighting the Cold War at Mach 5. And so walking out of the theater with Highway to the Danger Zone still, giving him the the beat to his step, he sees a, a recruiting officer and he says, yes, The Navy is for me. Highway to the danger zone, indeed. Sign me up. This sounds great. Well, I want you to imagine this same young 18-year-old on his first day at boot camp. By now, he has purchased the soundtrack and has it on his Walkman. Down the highway to the danger zone, to boot camp, where he does menial chores, is no doubt lovingly, I'm sure, yelled at by his superior officers, insulted in all sorts of ways, learned all sorts of profanity that he never could have imagined, intense, strenuous physical work and workouts and training, living in a bunk house with 
people that maybe after a day or two he sort of wishes he wasn't living with. And he might say, where's the beach volleyball that they had in Top Gun? Where's Tom Cruise? Why haven't my cheekbones gotten higher? Why aren't I more handsome? This is not what I signed up for. Now when we read passages like this, where Jesus prays that his followers would be one as he and the Father are one, sharing in his glory that the world may know that the Father sent him. And we read these passages as we have for the last six months about the book, from the book of Acts about the Lord adding to the number of the church every day where everyone's devoted to the apostles' teaching and they're sharing together in this radical unity and fellowship. We may see that and say, that sounds great. Sign me up. And then we come to church. And it's us. It's here. And we think, this isn't what I signed up for. We may get disillusioned. We may despair or at worst become cynics. This isn't the real thing. This was a bait and switch. This is not what I signed up for. Well, quickly, even before we fully dive into this passage, we need to see a couple things about that to free us from that despair. One, we need to see that, of course, in the book of Acts, there was a great deal of difficulty. It is not Top Gun. There was oppression to the point of, consider Stephen being killed, being pummeled with stones until he died. Or internal conflicts. We think of Ananias and Sapphira who lied to the church about the gifts that they were giving. Or theological controversies that were arising. Or in Acts 15, people had to come together and solve, what are we going to do? This is difficult. This growth, though amazing, comes with its problem. And even in in Jesus' prayer here, he mentions Judas earlier in the prayer who is going to betray him in a couple of hours. He mentions that the world is going to oppress his followers, and he prays that they would be sanctified, that they would be changed by the word, implying that he knows that these disciples, these apostles that he's praying for, they don't have it all together. So there is difficulty, and and two, at the same time, while there's difficulty, there was real growth, real transformation. The, The growth of the early church is something that even now, secular historians if they deny the resurrection of Jesus, they have a very difficult time explaining exactly what happened with this early church and why it grew so profoundly and so rapidly and so diversely. But more than that, we see here in John 17, Jesus praying for that early church, praying for those disciples whom he had entrusted the word. But more than that, lest we say, well, okay, but that was then, and this is now. That was them, but we're just us. Look at verse 20. After praying for the the apostles, he says this, I do not ask for these only, that is the apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. He prays for the future church. If you believe the message of Jesus, I want you to get this. Here we see Jesus praying for you. The night before his death, Jesus prayed for you. 
So there's a whole lot of hope here. So we need not despair. Well, what does he pray? How does Jesus pray for his church? The first thing he prays for, that we'll point out here, is that we would have unity. Verse 21. That those who would believe in the... He prays for those who will believe in the message. That they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. He repeats this phrasing several times throughout the prayer, that they may be one, Father, as you and I are one. This is a radical unity that he's talking about. And we saw it in Acts chapter 2 a moment ago. So that all the believers were together and had everything in common. They are connected. There's a diversity of people, and yet they're bonded in one body. And Jesus says, Father, may they be one as we are one. Well, who's the we? We, when Jesus speaks in prayer, is himself and his Father. God the Son and God the Father. So what we're, what we're doing here as we read John 17 is we're actually eavesdropping on a conversation within the Trinity itself. We're going to get theological for a moment here. Throughout the history of the church, we have always taught and always believed in all Orthodox churches that God from all eternity has been one God in three persons. One in substance, three in person. For all of eternity, God has always been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existing in a mutually connected, bonded, glorifying, loving relationship. Now this has all sorts of ramifications for who we are and what we are to be. But for now, suffice it to say that God for all of eternity has been perfectly one and yet perfectly three. Unity and diversity together in the Godhead. One quick implication is this. This means that for God, if you take a regular, monotheistic, simple simple monotheism God that is not a trinity, in order for that God to love, what must he do? He has to create. He has to create something outside of himself in order to love, but not the God of the Bible. Not the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. See, our God, the Christian God, the Trinity, for Him, love is not just something that He does outside of Himself. It's actually who He is. Eternally loving and glorifying Himself within Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that is a glorious display shouting out throughout the universe. And for all of eternity... God has been glorifying Himself and loving the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When Dawn and I lived in St. Louis, we had the privilege of going to see uh, Simon and Garfunkel perform at the Sabbath Center when they did their reunion tour. And the Sabbath Center is is a huge arena that holds 20,000 people. And the concert was, was just a beautiful thing. Even if you don't like Simon and Garfunkel, though, they span so many generations. All of us have have heard them and at least must have some appreciation for the harmonies that they sing and the music that they make. But throughout the concert, there were times where people were up on their feet and dancing and singing along and other moments where 
all 20,000 people were hanging, almost holding our breath, waiting for the next note, as these two troubadours with acoustic guitars had 20,000 people mesmerized. It was beautiful. It was an amazing thing. And that's something like that eternal inter-glorification that's happening within the Trinity. A display for all of creation. And Jesus says here that we are made to reflect that. This has huge implications for who we are as Christians, but also simply for who we are as human beings. This will be review for some of you who have been at RUF last semester as we talked about the nature of relationships between people. But there's another inter-Trinitarian conversation in the Bible. We have a few of them. The first one happens where? In Genesis chapter 1. And again, the Trinity is talking about us. God says what? Let us make man in our image. Us. God says, let us. Who is us? Us. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Make man in our image. In other words, we're going to make mankind to be like us. And you remember from the creation story, if you've read your Bible at all, in Genesis 1, as God creates everything in creation, he says, this is good. And God saw it. And behold, he said it was good. And God saw it. And behold, he said it was good. But when he singles it down to Adam, before Eve has been created, and he looks at Adam, what does he say? This is not good. It's not good for man to be alone. Why? Because God, for all of eternity, is not alone. The Trinity has eternally been in a united relationship. And so we have been created to be in relationship. But sadly, of course, the perfect relationship that we were made for was broken by the fall. Adam and Eve fell into sin, and so ever since there has been corruption and division and strife and fighting, and very quickly, starting with their own children, there's murder. It's broken. But Jesus came to fulfill the redemption of God's people to make things the way they were supposed to be again. And here in John 17, same as it was in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, he prays again, Father, let my redeemed people be one. Let them be like us. Let them reflect the glory of the Trinity. The implications of this are radical. Our union together, our oneness as Christians in this church is to be like the oneness of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This morning we had a discovery class for those of you who are looking into joining this church. Think about the implications of what Jesus prays for a discovery class as you consider joining a church. This is no light matter. This is an incredible decision that will affect your life. This rules out any sort of superficial, non-committal, on-again, off-again, casual dating relationship that we may try to have with a church. No. We are joined together, committed, fiercely committed, so that we will not divide, we will not split, 
We will not leave over trivial matters, over things that are non-essential, that are matters of preference. We would never betray each other. And if someone does break off, we go after them. We say, no, we're not supposed to divide. We're supposed to be one like the Trinity is one. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit don't leave. Not only that, but we're supposed to, not only are we committed, but our relationships should be deep, intense, personal, open, sharing, real. And that's what all of us long for. That's what you're created for. You're created for that relationship because whether you like it or not, even if you're not a believer, you're made in the image of God. You're made to be like the Trinity, and so you crave relationship. And that's what the church is supposed to be. The very reflection of the image of God. Now, unity is a fairly popular concept. I get approached as a campus minister by all sorts of different groups, um, whether they be Christian or, or, or different, wanting to have some sort of celebration of unity together, you know, a multi-faith worship service where we'll read from multiple different traditions and we'll all pray to different folks and we'll all hold hands together and we'll have unity. And for many folks, they would say, um, doctrine is the enemy of unity. Um, but Jesus prays something else for his church besides just that they would have unity based on tolerance. Look at verse 17. He prays, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. See, for those that would say, we need unity and we need love, those are great. But it doesn't really matter what you believe. It only matters what you do. Well, Jesus says just the opposite. Because remember, we're, we're made to reflect the Trinity. And what do we sing of the Trinity? We sing, holy, holy, holy. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Holy, holy, holy. And Jesus here prays, God, sanctify them. That word sanctify means make them holy. Make them more like you. To be holy is to be like God. God, Father, Make your people more like you. How? How will he holify us? How will he sanctify us? Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Word is not the opponent of unity. Rather, the sanctification by the word is the way that we get unity. We can't have it without it. Now, some of you are, are thinking, yes, preach it. Amen. Doctrine matters. Teaching matters. Interpretation matters. Maybe even doctrine only matters. What unites us is our doctrine and doctrine alone. All we need is the right doctrines, the right interpretations, and that's it. We're done. Go to church. Pastor, tell me what to believe. I will now believe that. Done. Go to Bible study. What does this verse mean? You tell me. What does that commentary say? Oh, we've got the right interpretation. Great, done, amen, let's go home. We may think, you know, we need more doctrine around here. We correct people more. Folks say stuff in Bible study or Sunday school, tell them they're wrong. It's wrong. Correct them right then and there. This person doesn't totally believe in limited atonement. 
think they need to find another church. This is a Reformed church. We're Presbyterian. Moving right along. Jesus says no. Doctrine absolutely matters. The word absolutely matters. We dig into the word. We want to get messy in the word. We want it all over us. Why? To be sanctified. To serve the purpose of unity. To preserve the purity and the peace of the church unto the mission of God. And that's what we saw in the book of Acts. The verse we read a moment ago, it says, the people were all together and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Jesus prays to the Father, Father, I've given these apostles, I've given these disciples your words, and they've kept your words. And then in Acts, we see preaching all through Acts. Proclamation of those words. Devotion to the teaching of the apostles by the church. And that teaching of the apostles is contained in the New Testaments that many of you hold in your laps right now. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. It's not either unity or truth, but it is truth that leads to unity. Both. And what does that true unity lead to? What happens when we are sanctified unto a reflection of the Trinity? What happens is mission to the world. Look at verse 21 that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, again, so that the world may know that you sent me, and loved them even as you loved me. Jesus says that when we are one, when we, rec- when we reflect the Trinity, it draws the watching world to him. Fellowship, understood in this context, is evangelism. It's not a choice between do we do evangelism or do we do fellowship. Here, Our fellowship has this amazing, mysterious, evangelistic quality. And that's what we saw in Acts. It says the Lord was adding to their number day by day those that were being saved. People are hearing the message. They're seeing this amazing new community that's being formed on account of that message. And they're being drawn in. And again, this was God's plan from the beginning. Remember, Adam is alone. And then God gives him a helper suitable for him so that he can better reflect the image of God and says, now that's very good. Adam and Eve together, very good. And then what happens when Adam and Eve, as husband and wife, reflecting the Trinity, come together? They have a baby. The original creation, before the fall, had the fall never happened, pre-fall evangelism, would be when a husband and wife come together and then baby. Or nine months, God lover comes out. That was the original plan. When they reflect the Trinity, then they are fruitful and multiply, multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. 
That was the original plan, which of course was shipwrecked by the fall. But Jesus now applies it back, back to us. It says, when you reflect the Trinity, the world knows. But then the opposite would also be true. When we don't reflect the Trinity, when relationships within the church are at an arm's length, how you doing? I'm great. How are you? See you later. I'm not going to tell you what's going on. I'm not going to be connected. I'm not going to talk openly. I'm not going to get invested in other people's lives in a way that might put my preferences, my convenience at risk. When there's that shallow distance, or open arguments, backbiting, gossip, etc., it has the opposite effect. We proclaim lies functionally, and people are repelled. Now, none of you would come forward and stand in this pulpit if you were a believer and say, the Trinity is divided, the Father doesn't love the Son, and they certainly don't love us. And yet, functionally, that's what happens when we divide, when we are angry, when we split, and people are repelled. A good friend of mine was a member of a church, and her family had been trying to witness to a couple of friends, a couple of families. And one Sunday they brought both families to their church, and afterwards the church had a congregational meeting. And in that congregational meeting, some divisive issues were being brought up, and people were actually standing up and shouting at each other across the pews, fighting, over non-essential issues, over practical matters of how the church should be run. Guess what the visitors did? They left, and they didn't come back, as any sane person would do. Now, that's a radical example, but we all know that this is the case. When we, when we experience non-Trinitarian relationships, we are repelled. But the great promise here is that Jesus says that when we are reflecting him, people are drawn. I want you to imagine again Simon and Garfunkel at that 20,000-seat arena and they're playing their songs, let's say Scarborough Fair, and they stop in the middle. And they say, you know, this is great, but we'd like to do something different. Is Ben Robertson here? That's my name. Or your name, substitute your name. Where's Ben Robertson? The spotlight searches. I feel the heat of the spotlight. Say, great, Ben's here. Ben, why don't you come down and sing with us? We want you to join in this. And to the cheers of the crowd, to the awe of them hanging on their, the edge of their seats, they invite you onto the stage, and you somehow miraculously join in with them in song. And you get to participate as they share, as it were, their glory with you. Jesus says, Father, the glory that you've given me, I have given them, that they may be one as we are one. I and you, I in you, you in me, and I in them, that the world may know that you sent me. The picture is this. We are invited in to participate with the glory of the Trinity. And when that happens, we have unity, and the watching world sees and is amazed. And they say, glory to God in the highest. They believe when we're simply like God and invited in. We become sermons in shoes, proclaiming the truth 
And people say, I want that kind of relationship too. I want that kind of unity too. I want to know the God that does that. Well, maybe you're thinking to yourself, Ben, Simon and Garfunkel calling me on stage is a nightmare because I don't sing very well. And I don't play guitar or even the kazoo. Don't ask the Trinity to invite me on stage because I can't sing. I know. We all know, right? We don't do this well. So how do we get this kind of unity when there when we fall so far short of the image which we've been created to be. Look at verse 26. Jesus says this, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. He says, Father, I will make known your name. I will make known your love in them. I will be in them. And what happens in the next chapter? He finishes this prayer. He walks to the garden. And Judas comes with soldiers. And the disciples he just got done praying for, the disciples he just said, don't take them out of the world, but protect them and make them one they scatter. His best friends for three years, they run. And Jesus goes alone. He walks right up to the soldiers and goes right into their hands. And they carry him on through a torturous process onto the cross, exactly where he knew he was going when he prayed this prayer for you. Our unity can only come when we are centered on Him, by His work. And that's the message of the book of Acts, the proclamation of the crucified and risen Jesus as we go to Him. And that's what we're about to do at this table. To remember, to express and participate in the unity that He accomplishes for us because He said, I will make your name known. I will put your love in them. I myself will be with them. This is our Savior. This is our Jesus. And this is the only way we will ever be one. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You. We thank You that You prayed for us. Nearly 2,000 years ago, You thought of us and You prayed, Father, make them one. Jesus, would You do that in us? Would You continue to make Yourself known, to make known the love of the Father, to unite us together, to lay down our swords, lay down our strifes, lay down our arguments, and to love one another as You've called us to love? We can only do it by Your power. And so now we look forward to feasting on Your grace together as a family. It's in Your name that we pray. Amen.